0: Thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Barbara Morrison. Barbara is currently completing her PhD in experimental medicine at the University of British Columbia in Canada. Her research focuses on cardiovascular risk management and screening in master's athletes to help prevent adverse cardiac events in their sports. Barbara is also a certified clinical exercise physiologist and has worked extensively in cardiac rehabilitation. We all know that exercise is good for our health and well-being, but one thing many people, including myself, tend to forget is that more of a good thing does not always mean better. So when I first heard Barbara speak about the effects of different levels of exercise on cardiovascular health, I knew immediately that I wanted to learn more from her about the ways exercise can affect our arteries and our heart health in general. I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it because I know I certainly learned a lot. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Or if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and subscribing for more great podcasts. And if you can, please share the podcast on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, or even LinkedIn. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it helps to promote the podcast to more people, which really encourages other guests to come on and speak, which means I can get even more great content out to you. So onto this conversation with Barbara, let's talk science. Barbara, how are you? I'm
1: good, thank you. How are you doing?
0: Very, very good. Thank you very, very much for uh joining me today and for agreeing to speak with me.
1: Pleasure to be on here with you and thanks for inviting me.
0: Um so I suppose before we 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 get going, um I would you be able to give us a little bit of an introduction to who you are, um, your background, and kind of what got you to to where you are right now.
1: Absolutely. So um I'm actually just visiting uh, here at John Moores uh, Liverpool University. I'm actually from Canada, um, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, um, and I go to the University of, of BC there. And um, I've done my completed my masters a few years ago. Um, all my research has been in in masters athletes. Um, I've done some some research also in in young athlete. Uh, prior to that, I had lots of experience in in cardiac rehab um, as a clinical exercise physiologist. So. Fast forward back to my uh, where I am at currently, I'm doing my PhD, like I said, at UBC, still studying master's athlete, I'm doing a five-year longitudinal study in approximately 800 uh, master's athletes, um, and I'm here visiting in Liverpool, um, doing some uh, additional research in uh, bodybuilders, so again, screening and testing them and looking at the cardiac
0: adaptation um, in those individuals. Fantastic. So you, you did mention cardiac rehab, and just because it's that's kind of a, a research interest of my own, and it's also something I haven't spoken about on the podcast before, um, would you be able to give us a little bit of a, an idea of what cardiac rehab actually is, why do we use it, and what are the potential benefits of using it?
1: Absolutely. So cardiac rehab is a um, monitored program in which individuals that um, have had a cardiac event, um, numerous like they could have had a heart attack. They could have, you know, they may be in heart failure. They may have had a valve replacement. Basically, any type of, of cardiac condition, um, they join this program um, to get uh, evidence-based um, advice in terms of what they should be doing for exercise. And it's completely monitored. Sometimes they'll be hooked up to an ECG. They monitor blood pressure. Um, And then they're prescribed exercise according to their um, individual needs Um, and normally this program It depends on on which where you are, but can be anywhere from you know four months to a year Depending and the benefits I would say um, Is just like I said you're being monitored so being uh, Instructed what you should be doing for for exercise to make sure it's safe and they're monitoring you while you especially at the beginning phases to make sure that You know nothing. You know, serious is is happening, and they need to tweak what they've prescribed you. A lot of the time, these these um, cardiac rehab programs also have um, nutritionists. They have a cardiologist overseeing everything, um, and they have you know individuals that are specially certified to be um, leading these these classes. And my background in clinical exercise physiology is the reason why I was working with these individuals.
0: Okay, so what, I suppose, what's the, the end point of cardiac rehab? What, what's the, the kind of the real goal that you're looking for?
1: Um, I would say to decrease the risk um, so that they leave there with a, a tool set of, um, like I said, whether it be exercise advice, nutrition advice, um, and also um, and with, with the um, hope that they would continue doing these things on their own. Um, to kind of instill, um, you know, behavior and motivation, um, so they continue to do it outside of cardiac rehab in a safe, in a safe manner, manner and hopefully to decrease their risk of subsequent
0: events. Okay, and, and what 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 do we know about like the, the benefits? Of, as in, do, does it seem to be having an effect on? Does it reduce events in people?
1: Absolutely, um, I would say modest uh, decrease. In events um i I couldn't quote an exact number but i'm thinking it's about a 20 to 30 percent decrease in mortality rates in individuals that um engage in cardiac rehab
0: okay and obviously you know when people start cardiac rehab they do it for a, a certain amount of time um but the kind of the goal is to have people uh make these changes long term but does that actually happen do people kind of stick with with cardiac rehab and the exercise after they've they've done it initially
1: some of them definitely do, absolutely. Um, <laughs> there's still some people, um, you know, I would say in a, on a population base, I would say that, you know, it probably, um, you know, rebounds a little bit in that they're probably not doing quite as much as they were doing in cardiac rehab, but it's still better than what they were doing before. So I still think that those, you know, long-term benefits, um, you know, are still um, prevalent, you know, and that they do continue. Um, and nowadays I think with you know the activity trackers and things like this I do think that does help instill lifelong behavior Um, I know in Canada we also had um, community outreach programs, so like a phase four um, and those programs were kind of lifelong so after they do the um, immediate phase more in a hospital setting they can definitely go into community-based settings so depending on the individual in terms of how much motivation and accountability they need you know they will sometimes go in the community or or you know go out on their own too
0: so so, so just like with, with anything to do with with behavior change there has to be some motivation on the part of of Absolutely. the person who, it's it's not like pop somebody into cardiac rehab and then automatically they're going to to stick with it um so just out of curiosity on that part um like i i know some of the guidelines here in the uk do try to, to work on that behavior change but um when it comes to, to canada um, are there any, uh, let's say, processes in place to make sure that people are kind of cha- changing long, long-term habits?
1: Absolutely. Um, like I said, it's a bit program-dependent. Um, I don't know of any, to be honest, um, specific processes. I think it just depends sometimes if, if there's a s- specific, um, you know, uh, program that will that will follow up with these individuals. Um, but I do think that is a is a missing link in cardiac rehab. Uh, if they're involved in a study, for example, then yes, there's some follow up and they ask, you know, are they still participating? But from my understanding is that there's no um, continuous or even like a once a month check in to see how they're doing to continue to, to give them guidance, which, you know, is a shame.
0: Yeah, you know, I think uh, I think a, a major issue with a lot of let's say lifestyle interventions is just there is not enough focus on behaviour change and and making that behaviour change stick. But um, that's that's a, a major problem that needs to be worked out over time. Um, one one thing that I wanted to ask you about. So your particular field of research is um, looking at cardiac risk in masters athletes. And I just wanted to ask, where did that? Um, what led you to to that research in that that specific field?
1: Absolutely. Um, so I was working in cardiac rehab, and um, I was working with uh, one of the, the directors there, the head uh, cardiologist. Um, and he was sending me um, some of his patients um, for like on a personal training basis, because he felt that these individuals didn't fit into the typical cardiac rehab mold, and the. Typical cardiac rehab mold is typically a much older population, um, not super active, um, which is maybe why they're, why they're there. Um, but these individuals he was uh, recommending to me um, because they were highly active individuals. Uh, and you know for them to get on a treadmill or, or bike and start sprinting in the middle of these classes, just it wasn't really designed for that. So I was seeing them on an individual basis and I just kind of saw this common thread where There was these, you know, youngish, let's say middle-aged, 40 to 50-year-old men, but they were highly active, seemingly healthy. And my question is, you know, why are these individuals having heart attacks? And that's essentially what led me to my research question.
0: Okay. Um, So obviously the the first presentation that I I, I saw of your work, um, you were talking about sudden cardiac death in, in sport, And I was wondering if you could explain to us what sudden cardiac death Means um, uh, and why is it uh, so relevant in today's population?
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, sudden cardiac death. If we're just thinking of the exact definition of it, it's um, you know the onset of, of symptoms um, or death within uh, you know during exercise or within within one hour after exercise. Um, and so why this is 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 important in in athletes is because. Um, underlying cardiovascular disease is a trigger to having a major cardiovascular event um, so that's why we've focused on on athletes because you know you would think that athletes are and, and they are you know um, they're they're healthy their risk should be lower um, and typically speaking absolutely that is that is the, the case um, but if they have underlying cardiovascular disease um, Exercise is a trigger for an event, and that's why
0: it's important in these individuals. <clears throat> okay, so you're saying so that obviously people who are exercising they've got a lower risk of cardiac disease, but in some individuals, the actual act of doing some form of strenuous exercise is enough to trigger an event. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. So in in sedentary individuals. Um, you know if they're not they may have underlying cardiac disease, but in order for um, that disease to trigger an event, there needs to be some sort of vigorous activity. So that's why you actually have a higher a higher rate of heart attacks say in the in the summer or sorry in the winter time when people are out shoveling snow. All of a sudden they do no activity. They have some underlying cardiac event. They go out there, it's cold, so their, their vessels are basal constricted. Um, and they start shoveling snow and it's that vigorous activity that they're not used to doing, their body's not accustomed to it, that triggers the event.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, so yeah, I I would never have, I I would have exclusively thought of it in in the context of like exercise, but you know, you've given a really good example of a, just a a day-to-day activity that, you know, could, could, Uh, not something that we have to deal with over here in the UK, you know, we don't, uh, we don't shovel snow all that often. Um, okay, so I remember the presentation that I saw that I first met you at. Um, you were talking about um, cardiac risk um, in cyclists and the number of events that occur in cyclists and that occur in in joggers. And it seemed that there seemed to be a huge amount of cardiac events occurring in these particular groups of athletes. And I was kind of wondering, uh, you know, is that research indicating that you know cycling and jogging are particularly high risk activities, or or what? What are we not?
1: No, the activity itself, it does not put you at risk. Um, So why they have higher numbers is just because, especially if we're talking about the Masters athlete population, um, most individuals um, in that population do events like cycling and running. So just because there's more of them, there's going to be, you know, bigger numbers. And it's also just the... um, you know partially like I was talking about the the level of, of activity. So if they have the underlying disease and it's a physiological um, Demand um, that is required for for those activities So, you know if you're playing golf and you have underlying disease Which is obviously a very low intensity sport the chances of having a heart attack are quite small but if you're participating in, a, in an activity that is um, very vigorous like cycling or running um, again, that's acting as, as a trigger in, in those individuals, but it's not the sport per
0: se. Right, okay, it's it's just the fact that there are so many people who participate in cycling and running that you know within, uh, a greater number of cases. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Um, so you, you've mentioned this a, a couple of times already. I've think your research focuses on masters athletes, and I was just wondering what exactly defines a master's athlete. Uh, and secondly, why why is this that particular group of masters athletes? Why is it so important and so relevant today?
1: Yeah, so um, it depends on um, you know how you're defining it. But basically, in my study, how we defined it as you know 35. It's a bit of an arbitrary number, absolutely. But if you're looking at under 35, the cause of sudden cardiac death is different than over 35. Of course, there's a bit of a gray zone in between. So under 35, you're typically getting more um, genetic um, causes, cardiomyopathies, um, um, and those types of causes of death versus over 35. It's typically going to be coronary plaque buildup in your arteries that, that is causing the, the disease. So that's why we use 35 um, as a kind of uh, definition for for master's athletes.
0: Okay, so um, unfortunately, everybody out there who's 35 or older, um, you do know, qualify as a master's athlete, whatever you're doing. Um, I, I, you know, uh, obviously incorrectly assumed it would be a slightly uh, higher age group, but um, no, it's, uh, it, it's good to know where the where the cut actually uh, actually is. Um, I, I really, really want to get into a kind of a conversation about cardiac risk and. Kind of two things that I, I noticed were particularly important in, in the, research and the research presented were um, atherosclerosis and then something called coronary artery calcification. And I was wondering if you might be able to kind of just go into a little bit of detail about what those actually are and, and what, uh, how they relate to the risk of cardiovascular disease.
1: Absolutely. So your coronary artery calcium score um, looks at the amount of calcium in your arteries, so the amount of plaque buildup in your artery. So, um, the higher your score, the higher your risk. So, there's a, there's a really good um, um, association between those two. So, um, you know, a score of less than 100, um, you know, is is lower risk than if you go from 100 to um, 300, moderate risk, and then you know three, 400 and, and higher, that you're definitely at higher risk. So that's kind of how we just classify risk based on your, your coronary um,
0: uh, calcium score. Okay, uh, and is, is the, the CAC, is that, is that a score that's used frequently nowadays in, in, let's say, at-risk populations?
1: Um, definitely, I mean, this is, you know, probably a conversation we're gonna have later, but, um, you know, not everybody at the age of 35 is going to have a calcium score done right but if if that was something that was starting to occur then yes a, a calcium score um, you know is a good indication like I said of your risk um, there's other like tests such as uh, CT angio um, but the risk with that is is you have to inject a dye it's, it's just more invasive there's more radiation um, so that's why you don't you know people don't go in and have start having ct um scans um as much as you would a, a calcium score but there is still a, you know ct is still um ct angio is still um even more sensitive than a, than a calcium score it's just putting it high the, the the exam itself is just putting you a bit more of a risk
0: okay um so with, with that let, let's say that calcification that that happens within the arteries what's the the mechanism in in most people of that why why does that
1: so there has to be some sort of um, injury to the endothelium of the of the vessel, so the inner lining of of the blood vessel. Um, so that's why risk factors are so important. So things like if you have diabetes can cause injury to the lining of the um, of the of the uh, blood vessel. Um, high blood pressure. Um, so those things uh, can cause injury to the endothelium and then it's, um, you know, then it starts to attract, you know, different um, inflammatory markers um, and then, you know, platelets and everything starts to accumulate there and the, the calcium or the cholesterol starts to build up. Um, and then that's what starts to, to cause the, um, the, the plaque buildup, which over time can cause, um, you know, restriction of blood flow through the, through the vessel
0: okay so so what you' you're describing there is the the process of atherosclerosis, where you know you know every something that we're familiar with when it comes to coronary artery disease you know somebody we get a up of um an atherosclerosis, um and that can be calcified is that right over time
1: absolutely so it is it is a uh, progressive disease so um you might even start getting some some plaque buildup in you know even you know 20s that kind of thing possibly even earlier um you know and it's it's a lifelong progression Uh, it takes a while to get to a blockage that would cause any sort of um event um there's it would have to be 70 percent or above to um usually to cause a, a heart attack but also Plaques that are um, a bit smaller, um, but are more what we call mixed plaque or non-calcified plaque, those are a little bit more dangerous because what can happen is when the blood flow is going through the um, arterial wall at a very high rate, um, it can cause the plaque to dislodge. So the mixed plaque and non-calcified plaque is actually um, a little bit more significant in that way. But if over time and in, in those more calcified hard plaques, um, typically, in order for it to cause an, an ischemic event, it's it's could be seventy percent or uh, blockage or higher.
0: Okay, so so it's it's not just the case if somebody has a plaque or not. There there are different types of plaque, and that can affect risk as well. Exactly. Okay, so what's, what's the relationship between, uh, let's say, exercise or lifetime exercise and, and atherosclerosis uh, or, or even calcium scores, um, and, and how does it happen?
1: Um, so lifetime risk, um, again, exercise is, is undoubtedly out- good for us. So normally if you're a lifelong exerciser, it's going to decrease your risk. Somebody who's been exercising their whole life and living a healthy healthy lifestyle is going to be at their lowest risk. So some of these individuals we're talking about that have sudden cardiac death, I mean, those are very few individuals. I think the the incidence rate during a marathon um, is about one per one hundred thousand. Finishers, right? So the incidence rate, I need, I would like to, is just, it's, it's low. Um, of course, that's just looking at marathon data. Of course, there's events that can happen, um, you know, when you're just out cycling or running with your, with your buddies. But just keeping in mind that the incidence rate is really low. Um, so, you know, I don't want everybody freaking out, saying that, you know, lifelong exercise is bad for you. It's, it's the opposite. Um, individuals that have been exercising their lifetime are the lowest mortality risk. Um, if you look at, there's a study looking at, you know, Olympians, they live, you know, uh, six, uh, on average six years longer than your average general population individual. So, um, so yeah, even though it's a, a progressive disease, it does take a while to build up. Lifelong exercise will slow that progression. Um, and however, we have, Seen in studies that um, people that have exercised for longer um, and are lifelong exercisers is when they do get some of this increased coronary artery calcium. Um, but like I was just mentioning, in terms of the types of calcium, um, it, it's more calcified. So even though they had higher higher calc- uh, calcium scores than the general population, um, they um, have lower risk because it's it's a calcified type of plaque
0: okay so basically what we're saying is so if someone's exercising for a longer amount of time um they they're getting a build-up or they they have more of these calcified plaques which are different from the 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 non-calcified calcified plaque is that correct exactly okay um so what what is it about exercise that calcifies these plaques because you know what we're saying is that would somebody who exercises a lot have a, would they have a higher, PAC, uh, you know, um, coronary artery calcification score, a higher CAC score?
1: Yeah, so some of the mechanisms, um, you know, like I was saying, there has to be some sort of damage to the endothelial wall, right? So sometimes it's just the, the sheer uh, stress forces um, during exercise because of the, the very, like, highly um, dynamic coronary um, circulation because of, in, the, in the coronary arteries. Um, like I said, hypertension, there's generation of, um, oxidation of, of free radicals with, um, prolonged exercise. Um, so sometimes it's just a, a systemic, um, increase, sorry, systemic inflammation, uh, increase, uh, within the body. And this starts, this starts to occur as one exercises longer, right? Those, um, the inflammatory markers are released. Um, so those are kind of the main mechanisms that can cause, coronary artery disease. And I think also something to keep in mind is, um, you know, if, if you're sick or um, have some sort of virus that you need to take proper recovery, um, because if you keep on doing these repeated bouts of, of exercise, especially when you have a virus, that can cause some uh, some of this damage in myocardio, um, or sorry, myocarditis, which is um, some uh, scarring of the heart muscle. Um, But that's also why you need to make sure you're taking proper recovery so that, you know, when you have this influx of um, inflammatory markers in your system, it allows your system to remove them before you go out and do more exercise and increase those inflammatory markers again. Okay, so so
0: basically if somebody is programming their, uh, their training correctly, they're taking enough of a break with their training, um, it should help to basically reduce, you know, the potential risk that you're that you're talking about. Is that correct?
1: Correct. Yes. Um, and the longer you go, so the the longer your bike ride or the longer your run, um, you get more of a release of these of these markers. So the the longer the break that you should take. So if you go run a hundred. Um, K ultramarathon you know you should definitely be taking um, adequate rest after that just to let your body recover It's like the same thing when you go into the gym and you do a leg day and the next day your your muscles are super sore you're not gonna go and you know start doing um, squats and or head squats again you're gonna allow those muscles time to recover so it's the same the only thing is in your heart you can't feel when it's fatigued necessarily so, It's, you know, the heart is a muscle as well. So if you're out there and you're, you know, um, doing a very high intense workout or a a long workout, just making sure you're taking proper recovery to allow your heart to
0: recover. Okay. Um, So, like, you know, you you started this whole conversation, you know, with with kind of caveat that, you know, exercise is obviously good. Um, But so one thing that I'm kind of getting the impression of is that there are certain levels of exercise that can increase that risk of, of let's say, you know, a cardiac risk or, you know, increase the risk of a cardiac event. So do we have any data on how much um, exercise we're talking about? You know, what are the kind of cut-up ones for, you know, good, uh, kind of good levels of exercise?
1: Um, it, it's really hard to say that at this stage. Um, it's obviously very individualized, right? So what one person, um, you know, if, if they're doing biggest exercise six, seven days a week and somebody's doing it, it four days a week, it's hard to, you can't say that everybody that's doing six or seven days a week for for 15 years is is going to have this happen to them, right? It's, it's very um, individualized. Um, there's obviously genetics that play a role, um, you know, which we can't control, obviously, um, but I think a safe bet would, like I said, just making sure that you're taking the proper recoveries, Um, you know, there's uh, a a study that did say that, you know, at 40 MET hours per week, and I can explain what that means, um, and and above, is when you kind of start to see, so initially when you go from zero activity to doing some activity, your mortality risk drastically increases. So even if you started doing 10 minutes a day, your mortality risk drastically improves. And so with more exercise, yes, it continues to improve even more, but there is a point where it seems that the, the curve starts to shift back up. So your mortality risk starts to increase. Um, so this is obviously looking at population study. Um, so you can't apply that to absolutely everybody that you know doing 50 met hours per week is you know everybody's mortality risk is going to start to go up. Um, so I think a safe bet is you know kind of going back to um, a bit of moderation, so you know, maybe a sweet spot. Um, so 40, I'll explain what 40 met hours per week would look like. So if you're a, a high level cyclist and you're exercising uh, moderate to vigorously, I would say on average that would be about 12 mets per hour. So if you times that by four days a week, there's you know um, just over your kind of 45, 46 met hours per week. Um, that's not to say those other three days, you should be doing absolutely nothing. Um, you can definitely do, you know, some stretching, some strengthening exercises, because those definitely, um, they they um, aren't as vigorous, as so the METs are actually a little bit lower. So if you're doing yoga, for example, I'd be about four METs. Um, so if you kind of want to look at your cumulative volume uh, per week, I would say, you know, do your three or four rides a week. Um, obviously um varying your intensity you might do you know a more shorter vigorous workout and you know another long kind of um long slow distance type workout um and then those other days you know just kind of letting your body recover doing lower intensity doing your yoga doing some you know light resistance training Um, and i think just overall not only for your heart but even just for the rest of your body in terms of injury prevention is,
0: is a good thing to do Okay, so uh, obviously recovery is—you know—I'm very Recovery is hugely important. There. Um, another, another thing that I'm noticing is that a lot of this research that you're talking about is talking about things like running or uh, or or jogging or, let's say, relatively high-intensity uh, endurance exercise. Um, and I, I just want to ask because I, I know a, a lot of people who um, who listen to the podcast uh, will be very very interested in strength training. Um, and as we, where does resistance exercise, strength training, uh, where does that fit into, to, to this, um, story of, uh, exercise and cardiovascular disease?
1: So strength training has a completely different, uh, physiological mechanism in the body. So, um, you know, you're not getting, you know, one to two hours where you have increased, you know, shear forces going through your, your blood vessels. Um, you know, it's, it's. It's not as prolonged as your endurance activity, so it, it definitely has a different impact um, on the body. With that being said, if you're purely just a strength trainer and you're you know you're only lifting weights, you're only lifting heavy weights, you're not getting the cardiovascular benefits that endurance activity gives you, which is um, important, like I said, in, in improving um, your cardiovascular risk. So if you're purely just strength training, not doing any aerobic activity, I that in itself, um, I would say would Increase your risk, so I think doing some aerobic activity in addition to um, your strength training would be wise. Um, so if you're just doing strength training, I think your your risk increases perhaps for a different reason. I'm not even saying your your risk isn't necessarily even um, increased. Um, you know, as long as you know you're doing some sort of aerobic exercise
0: um, within that. Okay, so it's it's important for people who are strength training, because I know a lot of people who do just strength train um, almost uh, take pride in the fact that they do very, very little cardio. Um, and, and what you're saying is that, like, including some cardiovascular activity, on you know, like something like jogging or even cycling, uh, is going to add kind of a, an extra level of, let's say, cardiovascular benefits.
1: Absolutely. It definitely um, improves your... Um, cardiovascular health, um, you know, if you're looking at either end of the extreme, if you're just doing endurance activity and that's all you're doing, you know, or if you're just doing strength training and that's all you're doing, it's like anything in life, you know, if you're just doing one thing and that's it, it, it can increase your risk. I think, you know, looking at it from a, a moderate, you know, perspective and doing things in moderation I think is is key. With that being said, you know, if you're, you know, if you, you want to train for a marathon, obviously there's going to be periods of time where you're going to be, you know exercising for longer but it's more of like the cumulative so if you're doing you know marathon after marathon after marathon that cumulative exposure would put you at risk similarly with, with strength training if you're continuously only doing you know strength training and and not getting any of these cardiovascular benefits from aerobic training you know puts you at a different type of, of risk okay that's
0: that's um it's probably really really good uh for some people to to hear that um, because it's very, very easy to just go to the gym and, you know, forget about uh, going for a run or, or going for a cycle or something. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your own, uh, your own research. Um, I was wondering, what are you looking at specifically in your research? Um, so
1: it's all going back to cardiovascular risk. So um, we're screening Masters athletes, um, and we're trying in which of the screening tools um, was the most effective at detecting cardiovascular disease. So um, we screened everybody with, with a questionnaire, so looking at symptoms and family history. Um, we also did a physical exam, so listen to the heart sounds. Um, we did a resting elect- uh, electrocardiogram, so looking at your heart rate and heart rhythm. And then we did blood lipid profiles. Um, and essentially um, with those, we were looking at something like, I called your Framingham risk score. So um, here, you guys use uh, the Euro score, so they're 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 similar in that they're using a logarithm to um, Based on different risk factors to to determine what your risk is. So, for example, with the Framingham score, it takes into account your age and your gender. With increasing age, that increases your cardiovascular risk. Um, male uh, uh, sex also increases your one risk until uh, females reach um, menopause, and they're at about the same risk as as males. It uh, looks at your total cholesterol, looks at your good cholesterol, your HDL cholesterol, um, whether or not you're a smoker um, or diabetic, um, and if you have a family history. So, based on that score, um, it puts you into low, moderate, or high. So, what we found in our study was that those individuals with a high Framingham score were at the greatest risk of, of developing coronary artery disease. So, if you wanted to just kind of See if, if you should do any any further testing. You know, going and and getting your cholesterol checked and your blood pressure checked uh, would be a good first start. And so, um, going back to my study, that you know that's one thing we're looking at. We're also looking at the prevalence of disease in these individuals because um, if we're to um, uh, suggest or mandate uh, screening in athletes, uh, first of all, you the disease needs to be present. You know, if you look at uh, breast mammography, you know, there's obviously a high amount of of women that get breast cancer. So you're not going to say, you know, uh, females should be going and uh, getting uh, mammography if there was a very low prevalence of the disease, right? So in order to see if if we should be doing any type of screening, um, we're looking at the prevalence of cardiovascular disease. And so in a population of 800 athletes, we found a prevalence of about 11%. um, Most of that disease coming from coronary artery disease so about seven percent of individuals um and we did find 10 individuals that had that 70 percent blockage or higher and none of them had symptoms so yeah um so you know i would suggest that you know um uh you know getting your cholesterol checked and and doing further investigations if if it's high um i think one of the you know misnomers is that um because even even general practitioners a lot of times say, well, you're active, you're healthy, you're exercising, your cholesterol must be fine. And I think they need to be treated just like anybody else. You know, uh, what we found is that Masters athletes aren't immune to, to cardiovascular risk factors and cardiovascular disease. So I think they should be um, tested just as much as somebody that's inactive.
0: Uh, that, that's actually one thing that I found really, really interesting from all of the, the research that we sent over to me in that, you know, you – can still, uh, you know, you, you could have an athlete or you could have somebody who is incredibly um, active uh, and it's very, very easy to say because this person is active that, you know, they don't have any problems. But there are a whole host of other factors and things to take into consideration that can lead to uh, sclerosis. So, you're, you know, you're somebody's smoking history, somebody's genetic history and like the 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 incidence of it in their family, um, somebody's blood lipids, which are very, very much dependent on, on their diet. And like, for example, somebody can can exercise a lot and still have very, very high LDL. That's that's not something that's going to be affected by their um, by their exercise levels. So I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, Just from let's say for for anybody who's you know a little bit older and is doing a lot of exercise um what specific things do you think they should monitor in themselves and do you i think there are there are any kind of take-homes that you know somebody can, can apply to themselves um to to, to help let's say uh may, maybe not even reduce the risk but to help them be more aware
1: yeah i think just like those things i was saying in terms of getting your cholesterol checked get your blood pressure checked know if you have any family history um you know, you could do a, a you know, an ECG, um, you know, and if there was anything and an ECG would be more just to see if they have any underlying, um, you know, cardiac arrhythmias, like atrial fibrillation. We haven't really talked much about uh, atrial fibrillation um, and we have actually seen an increase of atrial fibrillation in uh, master's athletes. So quickly what atrial fibrillation is, is it's an irregular heart rhythm. Um, and so what that can do is when the, the, Chambers of a heart are kind of fibrillating, it can cause a clot, um, and that clot can, can travel up to the brain and potentially cause a stroke. So there is definitely an increased uh, atrial fibrillation in master's athletes. Um, and some athletes do not have any symptoms of, of being in AFib. Some people, um, you know, have marked symptoms. So um, that's when I would also suggest like a resting ECG, which is very quick and not invasive um, and not expensive. Um, that would be fine. I would also look at it. Um, you know another thing that you can do and, and this is something that we're actually looking into a little bit more, you know um, You could do an exercise stress test to see if there's any ischemia during exercise, but it's not nearly as sensitive as, as doing a calcium score or CT scan. So I think the first step is um, to Get your cholesterol checked, you know know all your cardiovascular risk get your blood pressure checked um, if any of those things are high you know, perhaps doing some further testing like a calcium score or CTA or or an exercise stress test.
0: Okay, fascinating. So, so some really good kind of take-homes for people there. Um, I, I know, Barbara, that you're also doing some research in um, bodybuilders, and I was wondering if you could uh, maybe elaborate a little bit on that as well, please.
1: Um, we're just getting started, so we don't have any data, um, but essentially what we're trying to look at is just to see um, what the cardiovascular um, adaptations are in these individuals? Um, sometimes there's a bit of a gray zone from from physiological versus pathological um, adaptations. So, um, you know, we're doing an echocardiogram in those uh, individuals, an in ECG, um, but just to see what what uh, cardiovascular changes that that we're seeing. And we are looking at um, you know current uh, steroid users um, as well as past. Um, and non-users and kind of, we will be comparing the, their heart structure between those uh, individuals. Um, so I don't have any data at this point to to uh, report. Um, so that will be maybe a podcast once, once we have some more of that data. <laughs>
0: yeah, that'd be fascinating. What kind of age group of people are you looking for?
1: Um, we're looking um, 18 to um, 40.
0: Okay. Um any any other kind of inclusion criteria? Pardon me? Any other kind of inclusion criteria? Um
1: they just have to be strength training a minimum of um three days a week. Um and yeah, that's it
0: basically. <laughs> okay. So basically anybody anybody who's kind a of bodybuilding out there and um, whether they, they make it maybe a, a current steroid user, a past steroid user, or somebody who's never used, you can uh, you can analyze them all, is that right? Absolutely, yes. Okay, That's, uh, I'll be really, really interested to, uh, to hear how that goes. Um, just out of curiosity on that side, is there any evidence to indicate that, you know, using anabolic steroids can increase cardiac risk?
1: Absolutely. We know that there is um, some cardiotoxicity involved with uh, steroid use. Um, we had one individual, actually, that we um, had tested just doing an ECG, and it was markedly abnormal. Um, they went for an echocardiogram, um, and they had marked, uh, hypertrophy of the heart. Um, they, since, uh, this person was quite young in their twenties. Um, they, they since used, stopped using, uh, steroids, um, and, uh, their ECG went back to normal, their hearts returned back to normal size. Um, I think they lost maybe like 35 grams of, of heart mass. Um, so, you know, definitely with, with knowing that that they were at risk and and um you know and stopping it actually returned everything back to normal so but we, you know we don't know in terms of you know long-term use that could have been a very different story but that that's something that we're looking at a little bit um
0: more closely now So really really fascinating area of research so i, I want to wish you the absolute best with that um uh barbara for, for anybody who's Interested in your work and kind of wants to either get in contact with you or follow what you're doing. Um, what's the best way to do that?
1: Um, they can get a message to me here on on um, Instagram. They can email me. I don't know if there's a, a way if I can get you my my email address.
0: I can include um, that in the transcript.
1: Yeah, I can definitely pass that information along
0: to you. I'd be happy. And to you, are you active on Twitter or on Facebook? I'm also on Twitter and ResearchGate as well. Yeah, both of those. <laughs> okay, and I'll, and I'll put that up in the show notes as well. Um, Perfect. Yeah, Barbara, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with you today. I really, really appreciate it. Um, like I said, it's been a very, very eye-opening uh, conversation, and I really, really hope that everybody watching um, has found uh, found so too. Um, and I want you to I want to wish you the absolute best with the research, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get back on and continue up with the results.
1: Absolutely. It's been a pleasure to to be on here and, and thanks for having me. And yeah, anybody can can contact me and like you said, you'll put them in your notes and they can get a hold of me. And just remember exercise is undoubtedly good for us. Just everything in moderation and take proper recovery.
0: It's, uh, good advice right there. Thanks very much, Barbara.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Richie.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally, too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at bmorenutrition. That's at b underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.